Tonight's scripture reading is Lamentations chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we, must, we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown for the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head, woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forgive, forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. A strange thing happened to an American missionary when he went over and began preaching the gospel in Japan. Nobody understood him. His training was impeccable. He'd studied at the best Western seminaries. He had systematic textbooks all over his shelves. His theology of the cross was perfectly orthodox. And once he learned the language, he would explain what the gospel was. God is a holy and just God. We have sinned and fallen short of his holiness and justice. There has to be a penalty to be paid for our sin. Christ paid the penalty on the cross. When we accept Christ as our payment for sin, we are forgiven and become his sons or daughters. This is the gospel. He preached this over and over and over again, and no one responded. And no one even seemed to understand what he was talking about. Why? Was it spiritual warfare? Could be. But a number of missionaries have begun proposing uh, at least a, another way to think about it, in addition to spiritual warfare, and that is this. The Japanese have a shame-based culture, or a shame-honor culture, and Americans live in a guilt-based culture. In a guilt-based culture, my deepest problem is guilt and my greatest need is forgiveness. And so I understand this idea that my sins have rendered me guilty before a holy and just God, that I need a redeemer, that I need someone to pay the penalty for my sins. I can understand when you say that the cross has done this and 
that I can be forgiven. But in a shame-based culture, my deepest problem is shame, and my need is acceptance and the healing of shame. In a guilt culture, people do bad things. In a shame-based culture, social exclusion makes people feel they are bad. Over 60% of the world's cultures today live in a shame-based culture. And this is something missionaries are spending a lot of time thinking about, is how do you explain the gospel in a shame-based culture? Steve Loy, my favorite rural theologian, pointed out that uh, he's sitting in the back there, if you don't know him, that America seems to be turning into a shame culture. And uh, Andrew Crouch, who is the editor of Christianity Today, wrote a cover story on that a year ago that essentially said the same thing. He said that social media has driven this change and that the world of Facebook and Instagram has us constantly on display Now we desire to be praised and embraced by our online community, and we dread more than anything else being exiled and condemned. And so we care less about what is right and what is wrong. We care more about the number of likes on our post. We are moving towards a shame-based culture. And, And you can see this illustrated all the time. A few years ago, a young lady made a dumb tweet when she got on an airplane in India, and by the time she got back in the States in New York... It had gone viral, and she'd blown up her life, her career, and lost her job. The good news of the gospel is that the cross both forgives us our cult, our guilt, and makes it possible for us to be accepted. The cross saves in any culture. Now, why do I bring all this up as we finish up our study in the book of Lamentations? Well, it's because the Hebrew culture was a shame-based culture, a shame-honor culture. And one of the things that has really struck me as we've gone through these five poems is that what the, what, the, what the people are really wrestling with in this poetry is how to heal from shame. They feel incredibly ashamed. You know, Lamentations ends with a prayer asking God to remember the suffering of God's city, Jerusalem, Uh, God does not speak in the poem. The people aren't comforted in the poem. Like so much of the book, the prayer is kind of bleak and bitter. It ends with an ambiguous plea for God to act. There's no resolution. Uh, You kind of thought it might be building up to this great glorious picture of God's people returning to Jerusalem. It doesn't happen. They just get another rehearsal of Israel's destruction. God remains abstract in silence. Their abandonment and suffering in the first chapter is unrelieved in the fifth. And what you do here is more shame. Did you hear it as Chantel read? Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look, see our disgrace. Slaves rule over us now. We've totally lost our status. Our women are raped and abused. Princes are hung up by their hands. So, Lamentations is the cry of an abused woman, a rape victim, the moan of an emasculated man. Lamentations expresses the shame of a humiliated people. And you see it all through the book. 
She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked her downfall. They've seen her nakedness. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. Jerusalem has become filthy. He has brought down to the ground the dishonor of the kingdom. They were defiled with blood. No one was able to touch them. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. All of this is the language of shame. And if you read the book of Psalms, you see that their idea was that Israel was to be exalted, was to be honored among all the nations. And they prayed, God, don't let us be ashamed by our enemies. And so shame was the worst thing that could happen to them. I think that Steve Loy and Andy Crouch are right. I think that we are becoming a shame culture. Why else would four million people listen to Brene Brown's TED Talk on shame? Well, I thought we'd end our series just by spending a little time. Is there anything that this ancient and sometimes gloomy book could teach us about the healing of shame? Well, for starters, lamentations help us see that the consequences of sinning against someone else is often shame. A lot of times when we learn the doctrine of sin in seminary, it's about God and me and what I've done to God. And that's all very important and very true. But what theologians from shame cultures are beginning to teach us in the West is that the doctrine of sin needs to be expanded. It's not just, I've hurt you, God, I'm sorry. It's that when I sin against you, I actually can shame you, and you experience the consequences of that shame. Uh, Korean theologians call this Han. It's what it's like to be sinned against. Here's one definition. Han denotes a collective feeling of oppression and isolation in the face of insurmountable odds. It connotes aspects of lament and unavenged justice. It's a feeling of unresolved resentment against injustices suffered, a sense of helplessness because of overwhelming odds against them, a feeling of acute pain in one's guts. So when we're sinned against, when we're betrayed or abused or misjudged, we experience a profound sense of shame that leaves us feeling isolated and powerless. That's what their feeling and lamentations. And this can happen to whole ethnic groups, right? Because this is a people that is being shamed here, a whole ethnic group. Um, Andrew Park is a Korean theologian, and he, he wrote an interesting book right about the time that the L.A. riots were going down. And one of the things you may not know about the L.A. riots is that in, in addition to the, all the troubles that were going on, thousands of Korean businesses were, um, were burned and looted. And not a lot was done to, to protect against it. And there's this interesting literature among Koreans and other Asian Americans about their experience of Han in our culture, their experience of uh, being hurt in American culture. Um, he, he eventually writes after he describes what it feels like, and, and he talks about how for, Kore- for an Asian American, everybody thinks you've got it made. Everybody thinks, your kids are the smart ones. Uh, You're the ones that go to Stanford. And that actually this can be a very hurtful and alienating idea. He says, when a person puts up with long suffering or a sharp pang of injustice, he develops a note of pain inside, 
a visceral psychological reaction. That's what we call Han, the experience of pain and bitterness imposed by the injustice of oppressors. A number of years ago, uh, uh, an Asian-American woman came to All Souls one evening, and I, I thought we had a good talk, but she, she did not return. I saw her several years later, and I said, hey, you know, gosh, I, we miss you. I, I thought you kind of connected here. What, what was wrong? And I could tell she did not really want to say and didn't want to shame me. Um, but, but eventually she opened up. It was very painful her, for her to do so. And she said, you know, nobody thinks of Asian Americans in these conversations, but we often feel invisible in this country, and especially in churches. And I said, well, gosh, you know, what was your experience like at All Souls? And she kind of choked up and said, well, you know, you ask everyone to stand up and greet someone they didn't know. Nobody greeted me. Some walked by me to greet someone else, and I felt invisible. You preached a sermon that night on justice, on reaching out to the marginalized in the community. Yet no one spoke to me. I walked out alone with deep pain. I'm used to this, but it was deeply disappointing. Now, I, I have her number. I texted her back this week just to say, is there anything else you'd like to say? And she said, oh, our first experience at your church reinforced and drew out the feeling that we are the other. This feeling is hard to articulate. For Asian Americans, being uh, as other is tied to being seen as a perpetual foreigner and never belonging. So there's a sense of, uh, of, of shame that she experiences when she feels rejected by the church. Seminary professor Drew Hart describes his experience of shame like this. He says, every day I live with the realities that come with being a young black male. I live with the irrational fear, the stereotypes, and the clutched purses. I live with the perpetual threat of being suspected for a crime because I'm black at the wrong time or place. Being black is draining. So shame can be what an entire community or, or, or kind of... Uh, group of people can feel when they're sinned against. Well, what can we learn from lamentations about healing that kind of shame? Well, one thing, I think, is that lamentations teaches us that shame must be named. That somewhere, somehow, you have to be able to talk about it. That's not easy to do, is it? Especially not easy to do when we go to churches where everybody's mostly like us. One of the most transformative learning experiences I've had in many years took place in my office this fall. I'm very grateful for it. Uh, Jesse and Jill, our staff, Chantel Matiki and Sarah Kwan, we got together and we read a, a book called Prophetic Lament. It was written by an Asian-American theologian. And we were... Uh, by God's grace, able to create what our collaborative communication training calls a, a safe container. And as the fall went on, people got really honest. And it, it was profound for me. I heard things that I'd never heard before. And I also was able to talk a little bit about what it's like to be an old white guy in these conversations. 
I'd like to think that just a little bit of healing took place in my office last fall. So one, te- one step we can take towards healing shame is by creating safe containers where people can name the shame they've experienced. And if you've gone through the collaborative communication training or planning on going through it, would, would you pray about what it might look like to create a space where that might happen in the years ahead? I wish there was some way we could do that with OBC. I just think that could just lead to some profound conversations. So the book of Lamentations is about the shaming of an entire people group, but it's interesting that the poems are written in the voices of individuals, and one of the most powerful individual voices in the Psalms is the voice of a sexually abused woman, the daughter of Zion. The narrator says, They have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious parts. Look, O Lord, and see. She is despised. So this is the other reality, and and that is that not just cultures are shamed, but people are shamed. Um, The best book I've read on... uh, Shame is by Lewis Smed. It's called Shame and Grace. And here's how he describes it. Shame is a pervasive pervasive sense of shame is the ongoing premise that one is fundamentally bad, inadequate, defective, unworthy, or not fully valid as a human being. Shame is a very heavy feeling. It is a feeling that we do not measure up and maybe never will measure up to the sorts of persons we are meant to be. The feeling when we are conscious of it gives us a vague disgust with ourselves, which in turn feels like a hunk of lead in our hearts. Here are some shame-toned feelings that people have expressed to me and that I have felt from time to time. I sometimes feel as if I'm a fake. I feel that if people who admire me really knew me, they might have contempt for me. I feel inadequate. I seldom feel as if I'm up to what is expected of me. I feel I'm not enough. When I look inside of myself, I seldom feel any joy at what I am. I feel inferior to the really good people that I know. I feel as if God must be disgusted with me. I feel flawed inside, blemished somehow, dirty sometimes. I feel as if I just cannot measure up to what I ought to be. I feel as if I were never be acceptable. If I were adding to that list, I would say that uh, there might be another list that particularly applies to Christians, and it would include things like I don't hear from God like others hear from God. I don't uh, have the, the desire to worship God like others have the desire. I don't have the emotions about my faith. I don't have the confidence about my faith. I struggle more than good Christians do. You know, I, I seem to have this conversation a lot lately. It's something I've been thinking and praying a lot about Shame, and how do you heal it? It just seems like shame is an infection that has influenced and shapes all of us to one degree or another. And uh, 
I thought, you know, this summer, maybe one of the things I'll do, maybe when I go out to the monastery next month for my retreat, maybe I'll just get some books on shame. And, and so I've started to gather some and started to read them so that I could help you people with your shame. Um, <laughs> you know where this is going, right? And so I'm reading one. It's called The Soul of Shame. It's by a neurobiologist about how shame implants in the patterns of the mind and disconnects us. It's really fascinating. And I put the book down, and I think, oh, rats. (laughs) I thought I dealt with this. Because I think what happens as you go along in life is you kind of get rid of the, you know, the low grade. You know, I don't feel like a fraud. I don't feel like I don't know what I'm doing and all of that. I mean, you may, but I don't feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And you kind of deal with all that when you're younger, and you think, you know, we're good, we're good. Um, and then I realized that what's happened for me is shame has like gone underground and hidden. One illustration, um, I'm in a meeting some time ago and somebody says something and I get really angry and afraid and I lash out at this friend. Really created a mess, hurt her. Uh, she was gracious to walk through it with me. And one of the things, so, so I go home and I think, why on earth am I overreacting so much to what she said? This is really irrational. And if I'm anything, I'm rational. <laughs> Don't you hate that when you know better and your heart is just going, you know, bongo land? Uh, and so I start thinking about it, and she'd raised a certain issue. And we'd gotten into a kind of a conflict that in my unconscious had reminded me of conflicts I'd had in church ministry in the past that ended badly, one of which that led to my losing my job. And now I have a file in my emotional hard drive marked church conflicts that end badly and result in you losing your job. And now whenever... You and I have even the smallest conflict. That little file opens up and 30 years of crap, that's from the Greek crapola, uh, 30 years uh, comes out and it spills all over you. I thought, whoa, that is so alive in me. What is the deal here? So I I think shame is is a bigger part of us than we realize. One of the things I'm reading right now I won't say why, it's a stupid reason why, but the, a biography of President James Buchanan, who uh, happens to be known as the worst president in the history of the United States. So why would you read his biography? Long story. Well, at any rate, so I'm reading the last chapter where the guy dies, and this friend is sitting by his bed taking down all his notes. His last words, this president of the United States, is essentially, I was a good president, wasn't I? golly 77 years old dying of gout the last thing he can think of is shame it's just everywhere I hate it I just hate it I just hate it I was talking with a friend once and we were trying to talk about where they want to go in his life and he I could do this and I could do that and I could do this and I could do that by the way, note to self, when you're young, that's kind of cool. Enjoy it. <laughs> because when you get our age, the options get real limited. So end of, end of sermon. Um, it's not a bad thing to have. Well, there's so many great things I can do. I don't know what to do. Well, at any rate, this person has so many great things they don't know what to do. 
And as we spent time together, I said to him, until you deal with your shame, you're going to have no idea what God wants you to do. Why? Because when we're shamed, when we live out of this container of I am not enough, I am a fraud, we develop this whole way of being in the world, whatever you want to call it, our false self, our our persona, whatever you want to call it, to cope with the shame. And so many Christian lives are lived out of shame that you have no idea what God is calling you to do. You're living out of shame. You're living out of fear. And so, of course, you don't know your calling. So I think healing shame is just very, very important here. In that book, The Soul of Shame, he says, Shame is the emotional weapon evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and each other and disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. Shame is a primary means to prevent us from using the gifts we've been given. Oh, that's so true. It's demonic. It is demonic. And it's why you can do We've had these posters in our house of who I am in Christ for 20 years. I mean, they, they look like Christian stuff in the 90s. <laughs> and I've looked at those and said them hundreds and hundreds of times, and so have you. Why can I know every verse in the Bible about who I am in Christ and still feel like my life's going down the toilet when you write me a nasty email? Why? Is it because I'm stupid and lack faith and don't know the word? I know the word. It's because shame's demonic. And it does actually work into your hard wiring. It's like a virus that messes up the whole, whole program. So what can Lamentations teach us about healing shame? Well, again, I, I think the first step is you know, this whole issue of vulnerability. And that's what all Brene Brown's stuff is is about. And this is the the hellish paradox. What does shame make me want to do? Withdraw and isolate. What is the only thing that heals shame? Moving into community and being vulnerable. Oh, the devil's good. And I you know where I see it right now? It's that empty chair there. That empty chair there. And all the people that aren't here tonight, because there's a little voice inside them saying, they don't want you. You're not enough. You don't know anybody there anyway. Stay at home. It's a beautiful night. Brene Brown puts it like this in a a great quote. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy. The experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. Well, vulnerability alone, though, is not enough to heal shame. The daughter of Zion is vulnerable in her lament, but she is not fully healed. I think vulnerability opens us up to the healing of shame, but the power that brings about the healing 
is the love of Jesus Christ. Brene Brown's latest TED Talk is on listening to shame. She does a wonderful job talking about the power of vulnerability. And then she asks, what then? And she says that when a vulnerable person experiences empathy, unconditional caring and acceptance, shame begins to heal. It's not just enough to be vulnerable. And I'd encourage you, be very careful where you are vulnerable. Vulnerability is not in itself the goal. One of the worst wounds in my life came when I was vulnerable with the wrong group of people. So be careful. And by the way, never try to do this with an institution. If an institution has hurt you, do not go back and try to be vulnerable with it. It will turn on you and destroy you. So what do you do? I think you find safe places where you can be vulnerable, and social media is not one of those places. You find safe places. Roy uh, was in, uh, Friday we were talking about this in our group, and and I know some of you are guests and don't know all the names of these people, but I trust that you'll get to know them. But Roy Payne and Dorothy uh, spent 15 years in the Philippines, um, which is a very shame-based culture. And so Roy was teaching us in the group about all these experiences of uh, what it was like to live and minister in that culture. One example where he gently confronted a worker uh, on the compound, the worker uh, went home, moved his entire family two hours away. Uh, Roy told us that in that culture, you know, in America we have a list of top sins, you know, the top is, you know, murder or whatever, adultery. In, in the Philippines, the number one sin is to shame someone else. And so we're talking about healing shame, and, and Roy said, well, here's what I've learned. It's how Jesus heals the leper, right? Because in that culture, the greatest shame was leprosy. You know, they actually had to walk across the other side of the street, cry unclean, unclean, anytime they walked by. Here's how Mark's gospel describes it. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and knelt down. He begged, you have the power to make me well if only you wanted to. Jesus had compassion on the man, so he put his hand on him and said, I want to, now you are well. So when Jesus touched the leper, he wasn't just healing his skin. He was healing his shame. And here's the point I think Roy was so wisely making. Jesus' compassionate touch heals shame. Jesus endures the shame of the cross so that he can heal our shame. He makes it possible for the guilty to be forgiven and the shame to be accepted. He makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God and to one another and to find our place in the world. That's why healing shame is important. We'll never fulfill our destiny until we do. Let's pray.